All right, let's pray. Lord, we are uh, eager for you to speak over us today. We pray for your blessing on our time as we gather and open the word. We pray, God, that you would use this time by your spirit, through your word, to speak to your people. Help us hear your voice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Doing a series in the book of Esther, and uh, we're in chapter 5 now, so if you want to turn there, you can, but chapter 5, and this week I was looking at it, and I, and I literally, literally said to my wife, I don't know what I'm doing with this one. Uh, and you guys have probably felt that way every week, but this was a particular week where I looked at it, and I said, this is, this is a part of the story, chapter 5, where uh, obviously the, the storyline progresses, but I just wondered, why, why did God put this here, and what does this mean for us? So uh, what we find is uh, here in this section in chapter 5 is we see these two different characters characters, and they really embody these different ways of doing life. On the one hand, you've got the way of wisdom. You've got somebody who embodies what it looks like to, to live wisely and to act wisely in the world. And on the other hand, you have another character named Haman, and he embodies this way of foolishness, this way of, of doing things with only one's own self-interest in mind. And so we see the two different things pitted against each other. But if you haven't been here, let me catch you up to speed really quick. Esther is a young lady who became a replacement queen in Persia. Uh, she's a Jewish lady, and she ends up getting into a beauty pageant, uh, kind of pushed in that direction from her cousin Mordecai, and she becomes the replacement queen in Persia. And there's another guy named Haman, and he gets elevated to a position of power, and the king writes a decree that uh, everyone, when they see Haman, they need to bow down to him and pay him respect and deference and honor. And uh, Mordecai says, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to bow down to him for a variety of different reasons, but he resists that inclination. And that makes Haman so mad that he comes up with this crafty plan, not only to deal with Mordecai, but to deal with all of Mordecai's people, the Jews. And he presents a, an idea to the king and says, hey, I think uh, it's in your best interest that we do something here, like nationally do something about these people. We need to get rid of them. And he writes a decree to terminate all of the Israelites throughout the Persian kingdom. And so the people of God are kind of left reeling, like, what do we do here? And they're mourning, and they're, they're trying to figure out what their next play is. And Mordecai comes to the queen, and he says, hey, you, you need to do something here. You need to go to the king and ask for his favor, that he would spare our people. And she basically indicates, this is a very dangerous request. You, if I go to the king, there's a, there's a law that if I go in there without being summoned, I could be terminated. I could be executed. That's the law. And there's only one provision that the king would extend his scepter to provide life uh, and favor. And he says, well, this is a kind of a famous part of the story. He says, well, you know, if you don't do it, salvation will come from elsewhere, but you and your own household will not be spared. But then he says, perhaps, and this is what our kids have been memorizing, so you can ask them later, but but he, Mordecai says to Esther, perhaps you're queen for such a time as this. Maybe you're exactly where you are because God wants to use you instrumentally in this moment. And she comes to the conclusion she will go, but she says, look, if I perish, I perish. I don't, I don't know what the outcome's going to be, but I'm going to side with God and his people on this one, and, and we'll see how it shakes out. Well, here we come to chapter 5 now, and we find the way of wisdom and the way of foolishness. So the way of wisdom comes in verses 1 to 8, and it's how Esther behaves in this situation. Look at verse 1. On the third day, they had called a fast. They had been fasting and praying 
though prayer is not mentioned, but they were preparing for this, and so they did this for three days. The, all the Jews did this, and then Esther and her crew did it within the palace. But on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. So she goes in, and the first thing that I note here is just the, uh, this is obviously incredibly dangerous, what she's doing here, but she has a plan. Not only has she prepared for it through fasting and prayer, she, she has invited other people to participate in that. She's been praying, but now she also presents herself, and she does that by putting on the royal robe. She, she's going to the king, and she's going to wear the things that are most likely to receive a favorable response. But one of the things that I note here is that praying and deliberate planning are not pitted against each other. They go together. So we need to be a people who are willing to pray, and then we're willing to to think and craft and plan and act accordingly. Prayer and wisdom go together. And so she does that. She presents herself in the royal robes to the king, and she is spared. Look at verse 2. When he saw Queen Esther, when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her. And he held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. This is that act that was mentioned earlier in the storyline. In Esther chapter 4, she indicated this is the law. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that they might live. So she knows this is dangerous, and she takes that step of faith, and she goes before the king, and he grants her pardon or life or favor. He holds the scepter out to her, and um, she's able to live. Now, what's going on then, as David Fitch points out, is she is behaving wisely, going to the king with a plan, going to the king prayerfully, and going to the king in such a way to try to turn aside his wrath, Proverbs puts it like this in Proverbs 16, verse 14. It says, a king's wrath is a messenger of death, but the wise will appease it. So she is going before the king with this strategic plan in order to try to make him favorable to her. And it gets even better. The king says, okay, obviously you're here for a reason. Like when our kids start coming up to us and they're just over the top, like being kind and gushing at us and saying all this stuff, and we sniff it out and we go, okay, what do you want, right? That's what's happening in this moment. The king is like, you would not have risked your life to be here if you didn't have something pretty significant that you wanted to share. I mean, that you're here is an indication that you've got a pretty hefty request to make. So he says, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. You've risked your life to be in this moment, so make it known what you want, and I will grant it, even up to half the kingdom he's willing to part ways with. So she presents, but it's not what we would expect. It's an open door, okay? you've You've got the ear of the king right now. He's giving you permission to say whatever you want to say. She could just lay it out there, right there in this moment, and say, here's what's happening. Please do something here. But she responds in a different way. Look at verse 4. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. She says, let's share a meal. This is the way of wisdom. 
When you're dealing with somebody else, when you're dealing with somebody who maybe you're in conflict with or maybe you've got something significant to share with them, what she does here is she says, let's sit around a table. I've got a request to make, but before that ever happens, let's sit together and eat together. Now, this could be lost on us because we've just minimized the activity of eating so much in our culture. We just, you know, drive through a drive through and sit in our cars and eat very privately, but, but the meal is meant to be a place of worship, a place of fellowship, a place where we can share the human experience with others. And so she says, okay, let's sit down together and eat. And they do that. This is the way of wisdom. So she sits with them, she eats with them, and uh, the king is happy about that. He says, bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. Verse 6, as they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, now, what is your position? Petition, I'm sorry. What is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Again, he's reassuring her. Whatever it is that you need to present here, I will grant it even up to half the kingdom. Just let us know, let us know what you need. And again, she delays the request. She's patient here. Look at verses 7 and 8. She says, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Here's what she's doing. She is acting with wisdom. She's in no hurry here. She's not trying to rush to present what's going on. She is trying repeatedly to create an environment where she is most likely to be heard with the seriousness that the conflict demands. So she's willing to sit with them and eat with them and prolong this experience. Proverbs puts it like this. A person's wisdom yields patience. That's what we're talking about here. When you're wise, you, you can take your time. You don't feel the need to rush ahead and say, okay, I've got truth here. I just need to get it out there. No, no, no. Wisdom says, I will be patient here. Wisdom is yielding in me. It's producing in me a patience. So I'm willing to play the long game to try to make sure that what I have to share is well-received. That's what she's doing here. Now, we need to learn from this. We need to learn how to be wise people because right now we're going through all kinds of stuff where it would be in our best interest to think through, how can I present my case in such a way that it will be positively heard? Instead of just thinking, I've got truth, I need to get it out there, and we bulldoze people with it. Or we don't have the tact that Esther has, and we say things like, we need to have a meeting here. What does that do to the person who needs to receive it? Let's, we need to talk. And all of a sudden, the person's like, whoa, 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 what am I walking into? No, 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 we need to be willing to say, hey, let's sit around my table. Let's share a meal together. Let's, let's share life together. Let's eat together. And, and there's a patience then that's on display here. She is patiently dealing with the king to bring about a situation where she can share what she needs to share. But she is producing an environment with the greatest likelihood of winning that favor. Proverbs, again, says good judgment wins favor. But the way of the unfaithful leads to their destruction. Uh, as a pastor, one of the privileges of, of the work is that I get to get invited into conversations about things that you guys are going through. And I take that with incredible seriousness. But one of the things that I note is a lot of times recurring conflict often comes because we don't have relational wisdom. So there are things that are happening and instead of being tactful and instead of being 
patient and kind and gracious and overlooking, we quickly try to just make things right. And we take initiative, and, and, and then when we share what we share, and we just say, well, they didn't respond the right way, but if they would have listened to me, and it, and it has no regard then for the, the wisdom that is needed, we, it's on us to try to present our case in a way that that person will hear it. Not just to get it out there, not just to get it over with, but to say it in such a way that someone will say, you know what, I, I'm intrigued by this. I mean, as a reader, I'm intrigued. What, what is she going to say? How is this going to unfold? But the king, too, he's intrigued. What is her request? What is her petition? Now I want to know. And he's in the position to do something about it. Well, we need this desperately in the polarized world that we live in. We need to be patient. We need, we need relational tactfulness in the way that we deal with people. One commentator puts it like this, a direct confrontation isn't always the wisest response to conflict with the world. Sometimes subtlety and meekness are more effective in the long run. So Esther is giving us an example of that, of subtlety and meekness. So instead of rushing to jump on Facebook and sharing our opinions publicly and in a way that is you know, incontrovertible as we present it, and we just say, here's what I think, we need to be willing to kind of do that slow, patient, deliberate work of building relationships and sharing meals and expressing our opinions in those appropriate environments. Well, the way of foolishness is on display with Haman in verses 9 to 14. The way of foolishness is easily offended. Verses 9 and 10. Haman went out that day happy and high spirits. He just came from a party with drinking, and he's in a good mood. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and he observed that Mordecai neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. He He's easily offended. He, he sees, he's got all this good stuff going on in his life, but he sees the one guy who will not bow down to him, and it ruins his day. It ruins his life. Proverbs 13, 16, Fools show their annoyance at once, but the prudent overlook an insult. When you're, when you're foolish, something happens, and you're provoked immediately, and you're annoyed by it, and you just let that be known. Something didn't go my way, and I'm upset about it, and quickly I jump to that conclusion. But the prudent, the prudent are patient. They're not easily offended. Secondly, the foolish are only self-interested. Look at verses 10 through 12. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she's invited me along with the king again tomorrow. So he's just looking, look at me. Look at all this stuff. Look at how wonderful I am. I've got all this wealth. I've got all of these children. I've got all of this clout. I'm the only one who's been elevated to this position and invited to these private banquets. And look at all of this. It's just self-interested. That's what the fool does. The fool goes, it's all about me. This is my world, and you're just living in it. This is, this is my gig. Look at how incredible I am. It's, it's oriented to the self. Furthermore, the fool is full of idolatry. Now, the language doesn't show up here, but the concept certainly does. Idolatry is when we look at something and we go, if I had this, then my life would be complete. If I had this thing, then, I, and I worship and I serve this this God, so to speak, 
and I worship and serve this God, and if I had it, then I could, it would be heaven on earth. It would be, it would be salvation for me. But in its absence, it's hell. If I can't have that, then no matter what is going on in the world, I could never be happy. That's idolatry. One of the reformers said that the human heart is an idol factory. We just crank these things out, and they can be, they can be great things. They can be good things. But when we elevate them to the status of God, this is my salvation, it, it becomes a problem. We exchange the one true and living God for created things and worship and serve them, and it's to our own detriment. But that's what Haman is doing here, and we see it in the way he talks about the absence of this public respect being offered to him. Verse 13, but all this, all these things that I have, all this good stuff that I've just outlined, all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Everything else in my life seems to be going pretty well, but this one thing spoils it all. That's idolatry. When you say, I cannot live without this, I cannot be happy without this thing, that is the language of idolatry. Ian DeGuid puts it like this, his emotional strings were being pulled by his idol, which is public respect. When that idol was fed, he felt good, but when his idol was challenged, it led him to malice and anger. His joy and his anger were simply the outward expressions of his heart idolatry. The fool is an idolater. The fool finds things in the world to worship and serve. And we think, if we could just get that, then we would be happy. We need to be careful because we too can be foolish. Well, finally, he gets some counsel from his friends, and this too is no good. Verse 14, his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. In other words, they said, we know that you're tore up about this thing. Let's, let's make a plan. In the morning, before you go to the banquet, go to the king and make a request to have Mordecai executed. Set up a pole, 75 feet high. Set it up, and then in the morning, get the king to approve of this plan and have him executed. Proverbs puts it like this. Fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. The, the fool receives this poor counsel and acts with immediacy because the fool is easily offended. It's all about him. Things are not going his way. He's committing idolatry. And so now he takes action accordingly, giving full vent to his rage. So Haman is a fool. And we need to be careful because that tendency that I see in him, I see it in me. We need to be careful not to make the world about ourselves. So here's the question that I've been wrestling with this week. We've got two examples, the way of wisdom, the way of foolishness, but the question I've been asking is, why did God put this here? Like, you know, not just it's a good part of the story that advances the storyline. I mean, that's, that's interesting, but I want to know, what is God seeking to accomplish today here with us, with Park City, with, with us as individuals? What, what does God want to do here? Because I'm, I mean... Probably not very many of us this week were sitting around going, wonder what's up with Esther, right? Like, if I could just go to church and find out what happens next, I'd be really happy about that. No, most of us are here today because we're, we're wondering, what is God up to in my life? And when I open the word, I want to know, what is he trying to do here? And so we find this contrast of characters and, and really contrast of worldviews, the way of wisdom, full of 
relational tactfulness and patience and prayerfulness and deliberate planning and on and on and on. And we see that over against this way of foolishness, the self-consumed and easily offended and impatient and downright wicked. And that's helpful because we can see like, okay, I want to be wise. But I can't stand up here and say, okay, guys, here's what we should do this week. Why don't we leave from here and try really hard to be wise? We'll come back next week and you can report how that went. And we'll come in with our heads, you know, hanging low and we'll be like, oh, that was hard. Right? It's, it's not enough to simply look at examples. What, why is this here? And, and, and what makes them different? What makes the way of Esther beautiful and attractive? And, and what makes the way of Haman foolish? And, and what makes them behave in that way? And really, we could answer it with that simplistic way of just looking at how they behave, but that's not good enough. Right? Behavior is just the outworking of character. So there's a tree. I learned about this this week. There's a tree in places like Florida and the Caribbean, but there's a tree. It's called, I think it's called the Machineel tree. I don't know if I'm saying that right. The street name would be beech, a beech apple tree, but it's a poisonous tree. And it's so toxic that if you stand under it in the rain and the water comes off the leaves and lands on you, your skin will blister up. And if you eat the fruit, it's sweet at first, but then it gets bitter and then it, it starts to burn on the insides. If you ingest enough of it, it would be fatal. And so we could look at a story like this and go, okay, what's the difference? And you would just say, well, you know, Esther is more like a, like a tree that produces good fruit. Good apple tree, just things are coming out of her and those are beautiful and attractive and helpful. And Haman is more like a poisonous tree, right? The stuff that's coming out of him is evil and bad and wicked. But again, that's just pointing to the outward behaviors. I want to know what makes them different. Is there anything that I can say as a pastor that would be helpful for you to go, how can I not just try to modify my behavior, but how could I be a different kind of person so that out of my character, good things are coming out? And as I wrestled with it this week, here's the, here's the thing that I kind of landed on. I think the difference between the two is the difference between humility and pride. I'm going to tease this out a little bit, but I think the difference here is the difference between humility and pride. Humility leads to wisdom. Pride leads to foolishness. And I think that that is something that is taught through the entirety of Scripture. James puts it like this in his letter, and he's quoting Proverbs, but he says, As the Scriptures say, the Lord opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There it is in principle form. Here's how, here's how God rigged the world. People who are proud, who are self-reliant, who are self-consumed, who don't really consider God or what God might do for them, people who are, who are prideful, God is in the settled position of opposition. He's opposed to that. But to the humble, he delights in giving grace to those who acknowledge their need, to those who recognize it isn't all about them, to those who are willing to look to God, he pours out his grace to them, and that literally changes them. I was uh, listening to some sermons this week on a, uh, Ray Ortland sermons on the book of Isaiah. They're, they were wonderful. They were tucked away on you know, some back alley of the internet. I uh, was listening to them, but the best part, and I, I love them, but the best part was the reading of Isaiah chapter 2, and it just struck me in a different way. It just landed on me in a different way. And Isaiah is a prophet, so he's kind of looking down the pipe going, in the future, here's what's happening. Here's what we can expect. 
And he says, this is actually quite beautiful. The nations are going to stream to the house of God to learn from the Lord and to learn to walk in his ways. There's going to be this attractive element about God and his people that the nations are going to come forward and they're going to worship and serve the Lord. And then he says, and the result of that would be peace. They're going to take their weapons and they're going to beat them into harvesting tools. They're going to take their swords and turn them into plowshares. They're going to take their spears and turn them into pruning hooks. And he says, this is what we have coming. There's a day that's coming down the road when God is going to reign and it is going to be incredible. Now we should hear that and go, come on, come on, baby. We want that. Like that would be amazing. We can't wait for that day. And so as you're listening to Isaiah chapter two, you're like, okay, I'm on board. I like this. And then Isaiah says, well, there's another day that precedes that one. You're not going to like it as much. Okay. You, you like the, the good one, but there's another day coming. Here's what it's called. The day of reckoning, the day of reckoning or the day of judgment. And here's what's going to happen on that day. The Lord almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty for all that is exalted and they will be humbled. For all the big things, the impressive things, the oaks of Bashan, the high hills, the lofty towers, the fortified walls, the trading ships, the stately vessels, all these things that we look at and we go, those things are impressive. And he says, there's a day of reckoning where all of that stuff will be humbled. He says, the arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Oh, and by the way, our idols the things that we think we need to make ourselves happy on that day, we're going to look at these idols and we're going to go, well, this is ridiculous. These things that we thought would make us so happy, we realize they are worthless. And, and even worse than that, they're deserving of judgment. It, it says we're actually going to throw them into caves with bats and rodents. We're going to look at this and we're going to be so detested by these things that we thought if we had them, we'd, we'd be so happy. But now we're going to cast them away and go, these things are ridiculous. So the Bible consistently paints a picture that there is a way to know God and to be wise, and it is to humble oneself. It's to be humble. It's to acknowledge your need for what God alone can do. The Lord, when he taught his Sermon on the Mount, this is how he started his entire sermon. He said, there's, there's, there are kingdom citizens, and here's how you're going to know them. The first one is significant, very, very significant. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is the requisite for entrance into the, into the kingdom. This is what you need to be in order to be a kingdom citizen, someone who is humble enough, poor in spirit enough to say, I need God. And God in his goodness pours out his grace to the undeserving. He says, if we will humble ourselves, he will give us everything that we need. He'll give us salvation in his son, Jesus Christ, and he'll give us everything we need for life and godliness. The difference between the two, in my opinion, is the difference between humility and pride. And God is inviting us to humble ourselves and to receive from him. I love how St. Augustine puts it. This is in a letter that he wrote to a friend. And he says, if you ask me what the essential thing is in the religion and discipline of Jesus Christ, I shall reply, first, humility. Second, humility. Third, humility. That is the thing about Christianity that is so incredible. We come to God and we acknowledge our need for what he alone can do. And he satisfies us completely. So may we be a humble people who look to God for the saving work that he offers us. And may we be a humble people who look to God for everything that we need for life and godliness. And may we be a humble people 
who begin to display wisdom to a watching world, who have relational tact, who, who are willing to be patient with other people, who are willing to share meals with those who are unlike us in order that we might present truth in a way that is likely to be received. May we be humble, wise people for God's glory. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you, by your Spirit, would continue to do a work in our hearts. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to come to the cross empty-handed, to recognize that, that what we most need, you are eager to give to us. Help us to have that spiritual poverty. And help us, Lord, to find in you and in your Son all that we desire. Make us wise people for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.